Okay, who had the be- Who thinks their neighbour had a really great explanation of the book of Leviticus? Yeah. So, you, so I'm not even asking you to volunteer yourself. Uh, okay, Alicia, what, who was your neighbour? Eleanor, what's the book of Leviticus all about? It begins with an L. It's a start. It's literally a start. The Jewish name of the book doesn't begin with an L. But that's just me trying to look geeky and make it look like I know stuff. Now, we've got a, a bit of a fun day today because we... Um, We've been going on a journey through the Torah, through the first five books of the Old Testament. And really, the Torah is where all the foundations of biblical theology are laid. Um, There's nothing that comes up later in the Bible that you can't find in some reflection, in some way, embedded in these first five books. And yet, weirdly, they're some of the least understood books um, in the Bible by Christians or by most people. Um, So what kind of a God do they present? What do they say about his people and how we should be and how we should live? And that's the journey that we're trying to do um, in 10 weeks, which is comically difficult and impossible, um, to go through these five intensely long and um, deep and thick books of the Bible. So we've done Genesis. What happened in Genesis? Creation happened. Yeah, God made stuff. Did it go well? Yeah, it did. Did it go wrong? Yeah, it did. So in Genesis, then you get the story of how is God going to bring everything back to a place of life and health and goodness where his presence can be in it. Do you remember he designed creation not just to be cool, but to be indwelt by his presence. So God wanted to be in the garden with Adam and Eve. How long did that last? Do you like how I'm killing time? I've got 25 minutes. I'm just going to do the whole story up to Leviticus. Um, uh, Did it go well? No, because the next day, pretty much, um, Adam and Eve uh, reject God's voice, reject his commandments, and so uh, have to leave the garden, have to leave the place of God's presence. And basically, uh, then Genesis 1 to 11 tracks the course of human history downwards, crazy politics, crazy governments, crazy military regimes, crazy amounts of vengeance and pain and grief and violence, um, and it sounds nothing like our current world, does it? Um, But then in Genesis 12, God shows what he's going to do about it as he calls Abraham and he says through Abraham I'm going to bless the whole world again Uh, through Abraham I'm going to bring it back to a place where my presence can be and so God's intention is not to just bless Abraham and his family so today we're going to be talking a lot about the people of Israel but the point of the people of Israel is what it's to bring the whole of creation the whole of the world back into a place of wholeness and being in God's presence. Um, Now, all went crazy, didn't it, Um, in Exodus when the people got enslaved in Egypt. Do you remember that? It's one of the most famous bits. You should remember that. Um, If you're already looking sleepy, then we've got (laughs) problems. Um, But in Exodus, the people go into slavery in the land of Egypt, um, and Pharaoh is a nutter and tries to wipe out the people of Israel, and it's awful. And God sends a rescuer to bring his people out, whose name is... Moses. Now the rest of the Torah tracks really the life and ministry of Moses and the people get rescued out of Egypt and it's all great and they go into this place called the wilderness um, where there's not much there. So uh, they're kind of between slavery and the promised land where they're heading at the moment. Now where's Leviticus set geographically? Does anyone know? Oh, good. This is going to make me look clever. The, le- the less you know, the better I look. Um, so that's really good. Um, is the, the book of Leviticus is set right at the foot 
of Mount Sinai. So you know that they left Egypt, right? And on the 40th day after they left Egypt, God appears to them. It's in chapter 19 of Exodus and makes a covenant with them that Nigel talked about last week. God appears to them, makes a covenant with them and says, I want to dwell with you. Now in the second half of Exodus, God meets Moses um, on the mountain and gives him the law on the mountain. But then God's presence moves down to be among his people in the tent of meeting. Now in Exodus, the tent of meeting is on the edge of the camp, but God gives Moses the design of a tent which is called the tabernacle. Where's the tabernacle in the camp? Right in the center of his people. Where does God's presence want to be? Right in the center of his people. God doesn't want to be a peripheral. He wants to be in the center. And so at the end of uh, Exodus, we get this cloud of God's glory descending on the tent, which is the tabernacle. Um, And the cloud covers the tent of meeting. And it says in uh, the end of Exodus, verse 35, the last chapter, uh, Moses was not able to uh, to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it. Now, in a way, you think that's really cool. What a great display of God's glory and holiness. And wow, it must have been so awesome on that day. But it also kind of defeats the point, doesn't it? God wants to dwell with his people. But then there's this place of his dwelling in the middle of the camp and not even Moses, like the kind of the most close to God guy in all the people can go into the tent. And so that's where Exodus ends. It's kind of tantalizingly close, but we're not in the tent yet. We're not in God's presence yet. And so in Leviticus chapter one, verse one, the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Do you see the geography there? The Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, not in the tent of meeting. Get it? Turn with me, if you will, to Numbers chapter 1. Yeah. There you go. We've done Leviticus now. It's, uh, it's time to move on. Um, oh, the good thing is we're doing two weeks on Leviticus, and today I'm going to try and do like a scan overview of the structure of the book and the basic point of the book and next week Nigel gets to do all the difficult stuff that you hate about Leviticus um, so I did that very jammily so that um, if you have any questions about Leviticus or you have like your worst bits just tell Nigel after the service um, anything I didn't explain tell Nigel after the service and he'll come and mop up uh, my um, no yeah you get it uh, numbers one verse one could someone read it please someone who has it just shout it out Okay, anything changed? Right, so in the book of Leviticus, we're going to learn how Moses can not just be outside the tent of meeting, outside the presence of God, but in the tent of meeting, in the presence of God. Does that make sense? Right, so this is what we're going to do. Now, the presence of God is great, and it's with the people, and it's in the middle of the people, um, but there are risks involved of being in the presence of God. So last, in the last book, uh, God brought his people out of the land of Egypt. It was lovely. He brought them to himself in the desert, and there's this lovely moment where God's presence is on Mount Sinai, and God's giving Moses the laws and the covenant and how to relate to him. Um, and then, do you remember the story that's happening down in the base camp while Moses is up there? While Moses is up there speaking to God, the people of Israel, and they've been out for like 40 days from Egypt, and they're making, they make, a, they're like, oh, Moses has been gone a long time, uh, we, should probably, we should probably worship something. So let's make an idol out of some 
uh, out of gold and bow down to it and worship and then have a big party and go crazy. And yeah, that's, that's probably what God wants. So they, they have a massive thing where they make a golden calf. And God's presence um, is, is, well, God is livid with them. God is like, uh, it's not okay. Um, and loads of them die. Um, some of them die by the hand of each other. As Moses says, if you're, if you're with the Lord, strap on a sword and execute your fellow man. Um, it's a really lovely story, actually. You should read it. Um, and, and then God also sends a plague among the people. In other words, being in close proximity to the presence of God is at the one hand amazing because he's the author of life and he's the author of goodness and the author of everything beautiful in the world. And on the other hand, it's kind of hazardous because I carry with me baggage and mess and a heart that stinks a lot of the time. And being in the presence of a holy God is a very dangerous thing um, for someone who's a mess um, and who doesn't acknowledge it. Does that make sense? So Leviticus is going to teach us, as people who are a bit of a mess, how to be in the presence of God. Now, uh, let's have a look briefly at the structure. Um, now, I, this comes with a little warning. Um, how many of you know the Bible Project um, online? The Bible Project? Um, okay, those of you without your hands up are really, really missing out. Those of you who know the Bible Project, is it good? Really good. These guys make like five, ten minute videos that summarize Bible books and give you a little overview of the theme. They are incredible. If you're ever just having a read of your Bible at home, which you should obviously every day, twice, three times a day, four times maybe, five times if you're really good, um, and you'll get a bit stuck on a bit, not that you ever get stuck on the Bible because you're too holy, um, but if you ever do, um, go like just Google the Bible Project on that book and just have a look at it, um, and they do amazing overviews. Like It will literally lift your reading of Scripture to like, whoa, I get it. I get a sense of the big picture of what I'm reading. That kind of thing really helps me. I, I need the big picture of what I'm reading, which is why I basically only ever talk to you about the big picture. Um, Okay, uh, now in the Bible Project overview of Leviticus, they do this really helpful little um, uh, kind of summary of the flow of the book. Are you ready? It's very, very simple. The book is basically in seven sections. Um, can you, anyone read that? You can read that enough, hopefully. Um, so first of all, we've got chapters 1 to 7. As you pile into Leviticus, there's basically no introduction. You just get straight on with the badass business of how to execute animals for seven chapters. That's why people find Leviticus a little bit hard some of the time, because there's really, uh, it's just, it's very repetitive, very arduous, but you just get seven chapters of how to kill stuff. Um, and bring, bring, uh, bring it to God and what to do with the entrails. There's this lovely little verse in it um, that we read in the office this week, a few of us, which says, all fat is the Lord's. Amen. Amen. It's just a, re- a recognition of the goodness, the fundamental goodness. Um, anyway, uh, sadly, pork fat is the best. You're not allowed to eat that. So... Um, Anyway, uh, so that's the, lots of rituals, lots of how to kill animals. And we're going to talk about a little bit about why that's there in a moment. Then there's three chapters on the ordination of the priests. So the priests were people who were descendants of Aaron, who was Moses' brother, so they're of the tribe of Levi. It makes perfect sense. And these guys are, have the job of actually going into God's presence in the tent and doing uh, and making sacrifices to God. But there is kind of a holistic role in Leviticus. So, for example, if you've got, a mold, if you've got some mold in your house, you go talk to the priest. Now, if you get mold in your house, feel free to go and talk to Nigel. But, 
But it, it's not really why he's, why, what his role is in our community, is it? Mainly house... Mo- maybe that is. I mean, that would be an, a good upgrade. He does everything. He's been up scaffolding for the last two weeks, painting. So, you know, who knows? Um, but, yeah, it, basically, if you, get everything, if you get a funny-looking boil on your face... Go talk to the priest. Go talk to Nigel. Um, he'd love to see it and take a little picture. So that's good. Uh, so then we get, uh, you get three chapters uh, about how the priests are ordained. And it's a long and arduous process. They have to kind of stand around for seven days, sprinkling blood on each other and everything. And it's, it's lovely and very messy. There's a lot of blood in Leviticus. Uh, if you're squeamish... Okay, and then we get these weird purity laws, which is one of the things that Leviticus is quite famous for. Um, basically, if there is... If you can think of a bodily fluid, it's in Leviticus. It's one of the very strange, strange parts of the Bible where it just goes through systematically basically anything that your body can eject and then how to deal with it, um, what happens to the clothes it gets on, how to wash them, um, how many times you need to have a bath and how long it will take you to be clean again. It's lovely, really, really deep stuff. Um, So a bit of uh, bedtime reading there for you, uh, 11 to 15. Um, that also deals with which animals you are and aren't allowed to eat and cleanliness rules. And then uh, there's kind of the center point of the book in chapters 16 to 17, which we're going to come back to and spend a little bit of time on in a few minutes, which is this thing called the Day of Atonement, which is just sitting smack bang in the middle of the book. And then can you see what the structure does from there? It's very clever, very clever. We go back to purity laws in 18 to 20. So um, we've done purity, now we're back at purity. Um, and this is really more focused on moral purity. So it's thinking about who, who you have sex with, or more importantly, who you don't have sex with, which is basically everyone, um, uh, which is a good principle for life. Um, and then um, uh, another section on the priests and purity rules for the priests. And then another section on rituals, which kind of looks at um, uh, the, the, the rhythm of the community, not in terms of sacrifices, but in terms of festivals. Parties were at the key of Jewish culture, and it's just great. They had times in the year where it's just like, listen, put everything down and have a massive party for a week. You're not allowed to do anything. No work. Just celebrate for a week. It's really awesome. Um, so they have that. And then the last couple of chapters, 27, uh, 26 and 27, um, are really Moses saying, guys, you should really, really, really take this stuff seriously or it's going to go terribly wrong. Um, and that's the rest of the people of Israel. Sure enough, it does. Yay. So um, let's spend a few minutes just thinking about a couple of these sections um, together and how they fit into the life of the community. Firstly, let's look at rituals, um, chapters 1 to 7. Do you like, I just drew on the board. Isn't that clever? Um, not very well, but I did draw on the board. So uh, let's have a look at this. So the Lord summoned Moses, um, I'm in chapter 1, from, and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you bring an offering of livestock to the Lord, you shall bring your offering from the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall offer a male without blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance on your behalf before the Lord." You shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be acceptable in your behalf as atonement for you. Now, there's a lot of things that are kind of basic principles of the whole rest of these seven chapters in, this, uh, in these few verses. So firstly, um, speak to the people when any of you bring an offering. Um, part of the problem that we often have with Leviticus is we think it's addressed to these other random people at some random point um, in the past, or maybe it's specifically addressed 
In fact, one of the problems is the name itself, Leviticus, as in it's about the Levite tribe. Actually, the book of Leviticus is addressing the whole people of God and how they exist in his presence. So it's, it's to, if any of you bring your offering. Secondly, the offering should be without blemish. Um, God doesn't want our second best, does he? He wants our first best. He wants your best lamb. Damn it, if you're going to bring him a lamb, bring him a good one. Um, not like uh, one that you can't sell or something like that. So you just bring him the dregs. Um, yes. Um, you want a lamb that's kind of well built and manly and assembly lamb, basically. You shall bring it to the te- entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance on your behalf before the Lord. So bring it to the priest. You shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering. This, this happens a lot in the book of Leviticus. It's a way of kind of saying, this sacrifice represents me before God. And then it's killed. The bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord um, as atonement for you. Now, the word atonement, uh, the, it's one of those few words where the actual translation into English is incredibly helpful because it, uh, the translation into English, if you break it up, it spells at one doesn't it? Which is nice. And, and really, that's the idea behind atonement. It's a way of becoming one again um, with God. So that's kind of built in right at the start here. Uh, and the bull will be slaughtered, uh, and there's a lot of slaughtering. If you're, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan or just squeamish, it's just really difficult. Um, uh, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against the sides of the altar. It's a lovely image, isn't it? Like day one, you kind of think, okay, fair enough. There's a bull, we'll sprinkle some blood on the altar. But day two, like there's going to be a little bit that you didn't clean up from the day before, right? And then day three, day 436... Like, we're going to start to smell after a while, aren't we? Um, So there's a lot of fire, a lot of blood, um, and that's very nice. But here's the thing. God wasn't introducing sacrifice into the community. That's really important. Sometimes when we read these books in the Bible, we think, oh, this is God telling the people, "You're you're not sacrificing, and you should, because I need blood, because I need animals dead, so that I can forgive you for your sins, so that I can be okay to dwell among you. But listen, it's not right. Do you remember in Genesis 4, what is the, what, one of the first things that happens? Cain and Abel, do you remember the story? How does it start? It's not a trick question. Cain and Abel both bring a sacrifice. God didn't tell them to do it, but they just did it. And sacrifices were a normal part of ancient societies. It was like really common. They happened all the time. Here's the cool thing about Leviticus, is Leviticus doesn't just say you need to keep offering more and more sacrifices. So like, if you think about this, you're an ancient culture, okay? Imagine you're an ancient culture, um, and we are all here together. Say hi to your neighbor. Hi, ancient culture person. Um, and um, there's this kind of perception, um, because sometimes it rains and sometimes it doesn't, that maybe someone is behind the rain. Okay, so somewhere up there, there's, there's the rain god. And then there's this kind of thing where sometimes I get ill and sick and die, and sometimes people don't. So there's, maybe there's kind of a, a God who kind of controls whether I get sick and ill and die. Does that make sense? And maybe, there, there, maybe there's another God that kind of controls whether or not I can have kids or something like that. And then the, the issue is, how do I make those? They seem really fickle. Sometimes it rains. Sometimes I mean, the God, the God of rain in England is pretty steadfast. you know. Um, but... Um, but when you're dependent, completely dependent on rain in a society where maybe there won't be any, the, do you see how the pressure could come really quickly? Oh gosh, I've got to get those guys who are controlling this on my side. I've got to keep them on side. The problem is you don't know what they want. 
<laughs> so you start giving them stuff. You offer them maybe a bull or a sacrifice of a goat or a lamb or something like that. Maybe a duck or a pigeon if you're um, not feeling particularly generous. Um, and, um, but the problem is you never know when you've done enough. When you've given enough to the gods that they'll be happy with you and give you rain and give you what you need. Does that make sense? Can you see the kind of insecurity that's embedded in the sacrificial system as it stands in ancient culture generally? You see that? Then you get, and this is cool. Oops, that's not cool. Um, <laughs> uh, but this is how Rob Bell uh, talked about it. He said, um, well, um, the gods at that time were understood to be distant, detached, demanding, and constantly needing to be appeased. You never knew where you stood. And so in a society where you never knew where you stood about the gods, this is where God writes into that culture and says, hey, when you bring a burnt offering, here's how to do it. And guess what? You can know that we're okay. Isn't that cool? There can be a relationship with God where you know that you're okay. So you get these great things coming up. So like in chapter 4... Verse 20, uh, it says this, uh, The priest shall remove its fat and turn it to smoke on the altar. He shall do with the bull just as is done with the bull of sin offering. He shall do the same with this. The priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. They shall be forgiven. Now can you imagine the peace of mind that comes with that? You don't know if you've done something wrong, but you can go to a priest, you can bring an animal, see it chopped up in front of your eyes, and know that you're okay with God. Now there's weirdnesses about that, but can you see the coolness of having a relationship with God where you know where you stand? Is that great? In fact, that's not just once in this passage. It comes up again in 4.26. Thus the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. It comes up again in 4.31. Thus the priest shall make atonement on your behalf, and you shall be forgiven. Thus the priest shall make atonement on your behalf for the sin that you've committed, and you shall be forgiven. It comes up four more times in chapter 5. And again in chapter 6, it's just all the way through. It's saying, hey, guess what, you guys? You don't have to guess in your relationship with God you can have steadfastness. You can know, hey, he is okay with me. He loves me. And in fact, he wants me to be with him. Do you see what, that's really cool, isn't it? Because in the sacrificial system, two things are happening when I bring an animal. Let's say I've done something wrong, uh, or I've cheated uh, one of you, and I've, I've, I've uh, stolen your, I don't know, your car. Let's say, in, in this ancient society, they had cars. So I've stolen your car, um, and, uh, and I, I know that I've done wrong to you. So in chapter 6, it actually talks about this exact scenario, if you've stolen a car, um, or you found something lost and lied about it, or you swear falsely or whatever. But in the first bit of chapter 6, it says this. Um, you, firstly, there's, there's actually two people who you've wronged. There's two people who you've damaged. One of them is your neighbor, right? So the person that I stole the car off. um, And so I need to give the car back. And I need to give it back, maybe with a a sweetener in it. To, to, you know, kind of like put a little air freshener on it or something like that. Make it a bit better. So it's not slightly worse than when I took it. It's actually a bit better than when I took it. So you add a bit to it. um, And that makes you okay with your neighbor. But it's saying actually there's still this problem between you and God. So in verse 7 it says, The priest shall make atonement for you. You bring an offering of an animal. The priest kills it. And, and what happens in that moment, as the priest slits the throat of this lamb, or whatever it is, is two things I, get, I have to watch as the person who brings it, and I, I've laid my hand on it. 
And as this throat is cut, what am I looking at? I'm looking at a picture of death. And the picture is intended to hold a mirror up to my own actions and help me think through, oh gosh, what I've done is fight against the God who brings life into the world. What I've done is play it on the other team. And I've brought something of death. I've brought something of pain. I've brought something of guilt into the world. Does that make sense? It's a useful way of actually acknowledging, of seeing, oh, that's how my sin is. It's serious. It's a big deal. But it also says something else. Because it says also, but God has given me a way to be okay again. Isn't that cool? God has given me a way to be okay again. God has given me a way to come back into his presence again so I can walk home and feel guilt-free. Isn't that great? So I get a picture, okay, yes, it's serious, but I also get let off and I get to go home and have a nice afternoon. Amen. Um, Okay, let's skip on um, to chapter 8. Oh, go on. Exactly, yes, so you give the car back with interest. So it's... um, so sorry, you're saying they give restitution. You're quite right. So yes. So when you wrong someone, uh, I, I think actually this is something that religious people are really good at: is you do something horrible to someone, you then say sorry to God, and feel like you're done. Have anyone ever had that done to you? It's like, oh no, I've prayed about it and God's forgiven me, so you can't be angry at me anymore. It's like, no, you've still got my car. Give it back. Um, and and it, the, Leviticus is very realistic about the relationship between our walk with each other. And I'll walk with God and how both need to be made right. When you wrong someone, you need to make it right with them and you need to make it right with him. Because as God's people, you've modeled something um, not like God. And so the nations are going to look on and think, Ugh, stupid Israel, God must be dumb. So in chapter 8, the priests are going to get inaugurated. And it's just cool. Um, a very long passage, so I won't read it. Uh, but basically, um, Aaron and his sons uh, need to be ready to do the service of God before the, for the people. Um, so there's this long process of inauguration or um, ordination. And um, they have to put on cool clothes and then take them off and put them on again and have a bath and have another bath. And... Um, Something cool that I find about this is that the priesthood in Leviticus, they have great access to God, right? But they're not seen as morally superior. I really like that. I like that the people who are up front, no one has any illusions about them being in some way sinless or pure or amazing. In fact, whenever they come before God, they have to offer first a sacrifice for their own sins. Isn't that cool? That's written into Leviticus. Into, like before they've even started, God's like, well, I know you're just the same as everyone else. You're just going to screw up as much as everyone else. So we're going to need to sort you out before we can sort them out. Um, and so the, in the Day of Atonement each year, they have to bring first an offering for themselves. In fact, um, th- this comes up really clearly at the end of chapter 9 and beginning chapter 10. So the end of chapter 9, the ordination is finished. Um, and, and finally, the presence of God can settle on the tent um, properly. And that Moses and, uh, sorry, and Aaron and his sons can minister before the Lord. So they enter the tent of meeting in verse 23. Um, and then came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. Whoa, the fat's there again. The fat's like one of the key characters. It's lovely. Um, 
It's just a good book. Crispy bacon. It's good. Um, uh, uh, but can you imagine how cool that would have looked, right? The fire comes out from the tent of the Lord and consumes the burnt offering. It's also flipping scary. Now, fire is going to come out again in just a second. Are you ready? Now, Aaron's sons. Now, bear in mind, this is day one. They've just got the job. They've just been through eight days of ordination, and they've been through loads of training. Um, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, or Abihu, or Abihu, I don't know. Each took his censer, put fire in it. That means they put little bits of kindling in it. Uh, I don't think they actually picked up fire and put it in it, Uh, and laid incense on it. And they offered unholy fire before the Lord, such as, not, such as had not been commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now that's scary, isn't it? They've just got the job. And on day one, God goes and executes two of his priests for being too keen or what? Now, the wrong response to this kind of passage, and this is something that I've been, I've been feeling quite strongly over the last few weeks, the wrong response is just to try and explain it away, I think. The right response is to engage with it. It's to engage with the reality that God is holy and that sometimes that holiness is actually like a threat um, to his people. Now, no doubt about it, in my mind, Nadab and Abihu, um, I think they were... I think they were definitely in the wrong. There's actually uh, lines of interpretation kind of down through the ages about whether they were wrong or whether they were just, maybe, maybe that they knew that God was going to consume them, but they just loved God so much that they just wanted to be in his presence. So they went close, and, and really they're an example of really how to do worship really well. Um, there's, there's that whole line of interpretation. I'm not there. I don't think that's right. I think, I think they saw Dad do it yesterday, and they thought, oh, I want to do that. Uh, so I want to get the fire going as well. I want to I be like, whoa, look, God did the fire thing for Nadab and Abihu, and won't we look cool in front of our friends? I think that's what's going on, and they play with fire. Um, oh, come on. Um, <laughs> um, but I think where we need to be here is engaging with the solemnity of the moment in, chapter, in verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, Through those who are near me I will show myself holy, and before all the people I will be glorified. Now, I don't know what Moses' training was in, but it was not in pastoral care. <laughs> so Aaron's just lost two of his sons. Moses goes up to him, pats him on the shoulder and says, God got glory. Anyone tried to give pastoral care like that? Uh, not recommended. But there's this lovely moment where it says Aaron was silent. And Aaron was silent. And I think, I'm sorry, I made Rosie laugh. I didn't mean to. <laughs> um, for me, that actually is, is what we should be in response to this text and in response to this God who, um, who is holy. To not try and sum him up. Like, don't come to Leviticus and just think, right, I want to get all the answers Come and be like, wow, this God is holy. This God wants my whole life, and it matters to him when I do the way I do things. It matters to him the attitude I come to him with in worship. It matters to him that I do things with him as Lord and not for my own glory or for my own namesake. It matters to him that God is serious about all this stuff. So there's these priests 
oh, it's five past twelve, you're lucky things. Um, uh, and uh, there's this kind of sense that, yay, the priesthood, and then characteristically quickly in this story, things go dreadfully downhill. Has that ever happened before? Like when Moses brought the people out of the land of Israel, and the first thing they do is complain about it. Uh, oh, I want to go back to, sorry, out of the land of Egypt, nice one. Uh, and the first thing they do is like, the food was better in Egypt. We miss Egypt. We want to go back into slavery. And it's like, ugh, things just go downhill so fast. So it's a very realistic book as well. Then we get all the bodily fluids, which we're not going to talk about just now. Um, but really cool here, I want to talk about just this link here, actually, between the two sections on purity. And I think this is really massive. It spends loads of time not just dealing with how to get things right when they've gone wrong, but how to live in a right way before God. And Leviticus is so cool because it gives so much time. Skip ahead with me to chapter 18, if you will. The Lord's... Oh, that's the sex one. I don't want to do that one. Uh, I'll leave that to Nige next week. Let's do 19. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall each revere your mother and father. In other words, being holy affects your normal life. Like the point of Leviticus isn't go do what you want, go do some stupid stuff, go do some sin, then come, bring a little bull, kill it, you'll be fine. So you can go and do more crap and then come back and get right with God again. That's not the rhythm of the book at all. The rhythm of the book is the presence of the Lord is at the center of your congregation. So yes, I'm giving you a way back, but I want you to live in a way that mirrors his holiness. Be holy as I am holy. And so how that is put in chapter 19 is just so incredible and so revolutionary. So look with me at verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyards bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. Isn't that cool? That's in Leviticus. Here's how to plow your field properly. Here's how to cut the poor in to what you're doing. Isn't that great? In Leviticus. Or verse 13, you shall not defraud your neighbor. You shall not steal and you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. How many of you employ someone in your work? One. Good. So this relates to you. It's how you pay your staff reflects something about the God you serve. God is interested in that. Or verse 14, you shall not revile the blind, uh, sorry, revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So how you respond to those uh, with disability or with, with things in their way um, is to, uh, matters to God. God cares about that. Verse 15, you shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbor. Or verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where have you heard that before? That's right. When Jesus is asked, what are the two greatest commandments in the whole of the Old Testament? He says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, which is from the book of Deuteronomy. And love, the, love your neighbor as yourself, which I think a lot of people just think Jesus added as like a kind of, oh yeah, you should also be nice to people. It's from Leviticus. Isn't that cool? The command to love your neighbor as yourself is in the book of Leviticus. And what this is saying, and what the, the rules about your bodily fluids is saying, is saying that every part of our lives actually matters to God. 
Every part of, there is no part of your life, no day of your week, no, no thing that's in your calendar that doesn't matter to God that you do it right and do it with justice and do it with uh, purity. So, um, and that's actually something that's really easy to forget. It's easy to forget in, in any religion um, c- can ditch that after a while. So what you get over time here is that the people of Israel um, get really good at doing the sacrifices thing. They get really good at remembering to come before God and kill an animal and then go home and it's fine. And they forget over time, oh gosh, actually God is interested in the core part of what I do. We sung a song earlier called When the Music Fades, um, uh, and we kept playing music, which is interesting in itself, isn't it? Um, and that was, song was written by uh, Soul Survivor, by uh, I think Matt Redman, when he was at Soul Survivor. And Soul Survivor was like getting famous in the 90s for being this place where there was the best worship music, where they did things cool, and they had lights, and they had big band, and they had young people on the stage, and it was great, and everyone was like, woohoo! And after a while, they were like, oh dear, I think we've lost the heart of what it means to be a people that serve God. And so they wrote a song about it, and they, they cancelled the band, and they sacked all the musicians, some of you are like, amen, praise the Lord, um, and uh, they put all the PA away, and they gathered in a circle where they were, and just one guy led an a cappella song. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth. Something that's of worth. And, and that, do you remember that? I'm just going to say the words. I'll bring you more than a song, or in this case, I'll bring you more than a bull. I'll bring you more than a sacrifice. For a song in itself is not what you've required. Um, and, and that God actually looks into our heart. And it, that's the heart of worship. And, and the point of Leviticus isn't that God is some crazy guy who just wants blood, who just wants to kind of um, sacrifice us to sacrifice something so that we're okay. The point of Leviticus is God cares about every detail of your life. God cares about how you brush your teeth. Is that true? I think that's true. God cares about who you say hi to on the tube or who you give money to or who you don't. God cares about... Um, the way you address your colleagues at work, both in authority over you and those who are beneath you. God cares. He cares about what happens behind closed doors in your house. He cares, he cares about the relationships that you have between your family, kids to parents, parents to kids, parent to parent, <laughs> parent to mother-in-law. Also, that's in here. He cares about everything. Amen? Nigel can do the Day of Atonement next week. I think that may be a good thing for you to cover. Is that all right? We need to stop. Um, no, I, you, you always say that. We'll meet afterwards for coffee, and I, uh, we'll do some more. Um, but we do need to stop. Everyone else is bored, so uh, let's finish. <laughs> that <laughs> is <laughs> that was a, a very dubious attempt to summarise some of Leviticus. Uh, so, uh, also, I addressed the. I told you there was a centre to the book that's really key, and they didn't talk about it. So, uh, Nige can do that next week, um, which is incredible and really useful. Great. Should we pray? I think we need to pray, and then we need to probably go and eat something. Lord, thank you that you want your presence to be among us as your people. Thank you that you don't want to be a distant God, that you don't want to just have us obey rules but not have yourself with us. Thank you that your heart this morning is to be with all of us, to to actually dwell in our hearts. And Lord, we want to say you're welcome. Your presence is welcome in our lives. Welcome here as we gather, but also as we go. 
And Lord, once again, we, we give you every part of our lives. Lord, we admit that when we look at ourselves, we, we don't just see holiness and purity. We also see messed up agendas and fears and anxieties and stresses. We also see bits of vengeance, bits of hate. And so, Lord, we just want to say we want to give it all to you. And we want to see those things that don't reflect you dealt with. Lord, thank you that the promise in this book is that we can be right with you and none of us need to leave today feeling anxious. Thank you that you gave yourself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and for the meal that we've already had this morning to celebrate that. And so, Lord, we bring our rubbish to you. We bring it all to you. And so would you be the king again over every part of our lives? Would your presence be glad to dwell with us in every part of our lives, Lord Jesus? Amen.